Hello, and welcome to the Bristol History Podcast with me, Tom Brothwell. This week, we'll be exploring the role that women have played in the life of the city throughout its history. In podcast nine on medieval Bristol, and podcast four on the development of the slave trade, we have seen how Bristol grew from its origins in the 10th century as a small town some way upriver from the mouth of the Avon to become a major European port, transatlantic trading power, and the second biggest city in the country by 1750. How did women's roles change as the city grew? Were they able to avail themselves of the economic opportunities that increasingly opened up for their male counterparts? I met with Professor Madge Dresser, recently retired Associate Professor of History and now visiting Senior Research Fellow at UE, the editor and co-author of a great book titled Women in the City, Bristol 1373-2000. to We galloped through from the 17th into the 20th century, discussing these and other questions. I began by asking Professor Dresser about the difficulty of finding sources to piece together a female perspective on what was a male-centred past. Sources are very fragmentary because most uh, evidence, most archives record the doings of property owners. Mm. Uh, there were women property owners, particularly in Bristol, mm. uh, but the, the great mass of people, including especially women, were uh, not literate for most of you know, medieval uh, and 17th and even 18th century, and uh, they, weren't, um, they didn't have property or they had very little property. Mm. So they tended not to get recorded or recorded in a very marginalized way. So I had to piece together a lot of fragmentary evidence, and it, what was fascinating was what you're looking for. Mm. I'll tell you an anecdote that illustrates this. Um, there was There's a picture in uh, the M-Shed now, of, it's a late 18th century picture of what is now Key Street by the Hippodrome, mm-hmm. and it shows lots of um, people in the docks, uh, you know, walking around the shops, etc. And uh, 20 years ago, I felt very smug because I was the first to sort of notice and comment on the fact that there was a black person in that mm-hmm. um, landscape, that streetscape, who everyone else had ignored and just not seen. They weren't looking for And uh, But then when I revisited that picture, I realized I had completely ignored the women mm-hmm. who were in that. And, and it turns out that perhaps a third of those shops were um, uh, presided over by women. Uh, and women were consumers as well, and you get and women were workers. They were carrying milk pails and that sort of thing. So you begin to get from fragmentary evidence. You often see evidence of women's occupations that don't get recorded elsewhere, um, in virtually in literally in the margin. So there's 18th century picture of Avon Gorge, which shows women in the stone quarries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, carrying stones. Uh, they're not mentioned anywhere else. So you have to you have to piece together a lot of disparate records to get any kind of um, you know overview of, of what women were doing as workers or as artists or what have you. I asked Professor Dresser whether the history of women in Bristol was markedly different to that of other cities. Yes, I think each city has its own ecology, mm. uh, its own specific um, economic circumstances. So the very fact Bristol's a trading port. It's also a manufacturing area, so you have women in the workshops, um, uh, but they're also, it's a seaport, so you have a lot of women as, uh, you know, as publicans, as alehouse keepers, that kind of thing. But as shop, you know, shopkeeping, or market, they start as market traders, and then you get the rise of the permanent shop, which as edges a lot of women out mm. uh, as things get more privatized, and if you like, you know, consumerism becomes more gentrified. 
yes. uh, to use a modern term. Uh, and so a lot of the women who are market traders on the Welsh back, or for example, um, I found to my astonishment that a lot of the, uh, you have weekly markets before the rise of print shops, and people would, or uh, twice weekly markets, people would come from Wales to bring poultry and, and mm. dairy goods, etc. The Hlandagr Trow, that pub, yeah, it's yeah. a trow is a flat bottom boat from Hlandagr, uh -huh. and it's on which these commodities were brought. But if you look at the market traders, there's a book in the record office. Mm -hmm. Who were the people who brought this stuff? Well, a lot of guys were bringing, you know, leather goods and cattle, etc. But a lot of the dairy produce and um, uh, eggs and things were brought by women traders mm. who were traveling independently and then um, selling their, you know, they were the fishwives and the chicken purveyors, etc., um, who were, uh, you know, on the quayside selling. But they were also planning the journeys. Mm. Uh, so they're kind of middling women, but they're not all ladylike. Yes, okay. Uh, yeah. So middling women refers, because uh, it's a term that, that pops yeah. up in the book, and so you're talking about people who are, um, I suppose, not labourers, there's an artisanal aspect to what they do. But well, it's a kind of, by the 1830s you get a kind of middle class and a working class, and mm. sort of, uh, but, but, but from, from the 1600s, if not before, and uh, through the the uh, early 19th century, you have the middling, what they call the middling ranks, which encompass everyone from a rich merchant and a banker, mm. you know, who's not gentry, uh, to a artisan mm. uh, who might not be literate but has a skill of some sort, or is at least independent. They're they're making their living in some way, and then the great mass of laboring poor who are much harder to document. But the middling ranks is a broad church. Yes. Okay. I see. And and my point is, is as the 19th century progresses. Uh, a lot of the women who were sort of seen as middling, respectable people, uh, well, respectability becomes a byword in the, mm. the run-up to Victorian era. Uh, and so um, the rough and ready, you know, market traders, etc., kind of get edged back into the laboring classes as the middle class finds a, um, more, you know, constraining roles for women and develops into a more self-conscious class. As the city's economy developed with Bristol's growth as an Atlantic port, trade and commerce became more specialised and professionalised. This process seems to have favoured men and pushed women more towards the margins of economic life. For instance, while many women operated as market traders, the rise of permanent shops and their associated costs meant that fewer women could operate independently as grocers and merchants. The establishment in 1801 of the Commercial Rooms on Corn Street, which now houses undoubtedly the finest Weatherspoons in the city, formalised male networking amongst those traders who were not members of the elite and also male-only Society of Merchant Venturers. Women had played a significant part in the flourishing of Bristol's economy, but as we enter the 19th century and move into the Victorian era, there is a developing norm that the ideal woman is one who is genteel, refined, and not engaged in or tainted by messy commerce. Professor Dresser again. It's a double-edged mm. sword because you have on the one hand, you know, there's more wealth, you've got an expanding middle class in the 18th century, um, and, you know, women are benefiting from this, although rather unevenly. Mm -hmm. um, but on the other hand, you have, as people get more respectable and refined, uh, there are more constraints on what women can do in the public sphere. So in some ways, as women get more educated and more religious, etc., they can use the cloak of religious activity to campaign on social issues like anti-slavery, mm. 
prison reform, etc. On the other hand, they're quite constrained, and they're not respectable women are less and less seen as able to work. So mm. in 1650, you might have a you know, respectable middling woman working alongside her husband in the shop, yes. and basically running the business with him. Even though he gets all the credit, you know, depending on the woman, she could be quite a powerful, yeah. you know, um, hands-on uh, participant in the economy, where her granddaughter would not be in the shop. She'd be you know, genteel boarding school and, you know, more ladylike. Mm. But that's can constrain uh, yeah. people's, you know, sphere of mobility. In Podcast 8, we explored the life and work of the writer and playwright Hannah Moore. One aspect that we didn't touch on was her support of a protégé poet, Anne Yearsley. Anne Yearsley came up, as I asked Professor Dresser, about some of the more interesting individuals that she came across in putting her book together. Well, I quite like Anne Yearsley. She was a protege hmm. of, of Hannah Moore, uh, in that um, she was the daughter of a... Well, she, she and her husband had a small plot that the Merchant Ventures privatized, mm-hmm. so they were left virtually starving. And she was self-taught mm. and a very much a you know, person of the Enlightenment. Um, but um, Anna, Hannah Moore took her on and published her, her poems, um, but wanted to control her life and wanted mm. her to be duly you know, subservient and servile. And when Anne Yearsley asked for um, control of the royalties from her writing, yeah. um, Hannah Moore was affronted and broke with her. And, uh, and, and so Anne Yearsley continued. And she, she sort of took on the Bristol establishment. She had certain arguments. She was a much more radical mm. uh, writer than, than um, Hannah Moore, who was evangelical. And um, she wasn't as religious as, as Hannah Moore. And she ended up, um, as there was a kind of backlash by the, after the French Revolution against radical reform. Mm. So her star was waning a bit by the 1790s. But she ran a circulating library in the Hotwells okay. uh, and um, you know, ended her days, you know, having published a play and everything subsequent. So I think, and what's fascinating about her, which I talk about in the book, is how in the 1790s, uh, she, or 1780s, she's represented as a, in a sketch as a sort of intellectual woman with a pen and, mm. you know, an interior life. But by 1806, during, after the backlash, she's seen as the milkmaid poet, as a rustic idiot, you know, yeah. with, a, you know, ragged clothes and, and a, a kind of stupid expression on her face. And I just think that's so interesting, the way women get occluded or misrepresented or hidden or forgotten as the century progresses. The falling out of Hannah Moore and Anne Yearsley and the later portrayal of Yearsley as a somewhat stupid, if naturally gifted, bumpkin shows how class can cut across the commonality of female experience. Both Moore and Yearsley were successful female poets and writers, but it was Hannah Moore who was able to condescend to the lower status Yearsley, and Moore had much greater control over her public image. And, and you had other people like Jane Cave, who, she wasn't a native of Bristol, but she wrote a poem on the Bristol uh, bridge riots, which killed 11 people when the militia came and shot lots of people protesting against toll bridges, mm. uh, sorry, tolls on the bridge, and um, of the corruption of the city officials and, and continuing to take these tolls after the bridge was financed. And so she was a you know, public writer who got out there. We heard in podcast 10 on Bristol riots, how in the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries, 
Women would often lead, instigate or be key players in riots and public protests aimed at removing tolls, lowering bread prices and so on. As British authorities panicked in the aftermath of the French Revolution, there was a massacre of citizens protesting tolls on Bristol Bridge in 1793. Jane Cave wrote her protest poem in response. It was a political work, not afraid to cast blame. Then how speaks conscience, sirs, to you, by whose command the bullets flew? But it's also careful not to promote attacks of vengeance. For limbs or friends that's torn away, justice the evil will repay in this or some more distant day. Calmly to heaven submit your cause, nor violate its sacred laws. By fell vengeance seek not for blood, vengeance belongs alone to God. I asked Professor Dresser if there were any other prominent women from Bristol's history that had stood out when she was researching the book. I guess the biggest sort of figure that leapt out at me was Sarah Guppy. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've just done a, a Dictionary of National Biography entry on her. Um, but she was um, seen as this eccentric woman who invented a kind of tease made in an exercise bed, mm. etc. And then um, her second husband was 30 years her junior and spent all her money, so she was seen as a kind of cougar, but a bit of an oddity as an inventor. But she was so much more mm. because she was a, from a um, craftsman family, and she and her first husband, she probably uh, was um, very much, well, she, she certainly promoted the idea of a bridge across the uh, gorge, Haven Gorge, she was a major investor in the, um, later on in the suspension bridge in the Great Western Railway, but she also probably had a hand in some of the technical um, inventions um, that made her husband's fortune uh, with uh, nails in a, uh, in a ship so that the barnacles wouldn't adhere to the ship. Okay. Uh, we don't know how much, but it seemed she, once you start investigating her, she was a, a fount of all sorts of uh, practical schemes for improving railways, railway safety, animal welfare, the um, uh, uh, environmental um, uh, reforms, and also uh, she wrote um, children's books and was for education. And a real Victorian, because she didn't want the servants to be paid too much. So she was a sort of proto-Victorian type in certain ways, but she was a campaigner, a practical woman with a huge personality who um, was um, you know, really stymied by the growing idea of, um, you know, respectability and, uh, you know, a woman's place. As women were pushed to the economic margins, one area where they were increasingly able to assert their influence was in the religious movements and philanthropic organisations that proliferated throughout the late 17th and then into the 18th and 19th centuries. As Professor Dresser explains, the respect towards women that was embodied in the Quaker movement was important here. That really starts from the 17th, the late 17th century, the Quaker, the role of the Quakers and Baptists. When Quaker ideology, you know, it's a nonconformist sect, it's, it's not Church of England, but it's mm -hmm. Protestant. Uh, but the Quakers, and to a lesser extent the um, Baptists and Unitarians and Congregations, they had a much more um, egalitarian uh, theology. They didn't think the king should determine how you believed in God or interpret the Bible. You had to read the Bible for yourself. Mm. And for the Quakers, God spoke to you directly, not through a minister or anything. Uh, for the Baptists, that you had ministers, but you didn't have bishops and archbishops and all that sort of mm. thing. So it's much more 
about spiritual equality, which um, particularly for Quakers meant that women had their own meetings, but they were they had they they were quite powerful within their congregations. And the uh, Quaker women from the 17th uh, century, some of the Baptists, these old Puritan types, mm -hmm. uh, were um, in the forefront of both um, um, literacy, promotion of literacy, and campaigning against uh, royal absolutism and, and uh, for personal freedom and things, and against slavery, of course. So they they're quite they're and by the Victorian times they you know they've got the infrastructure to do quite a bit. By the time we get to the late Victorian period, towards the end of the 19th century, we tend to associate women's public activity with the quest for the vote, for suffrage. In many ways, that's proper. Without the vote, the very idea of women's politics was a distinctly second-class one. However, it is important to appreciate that the drive towards suffrage was just one strand of a much broader women's movement that flourished in Britain and in Bristol in the late 19th and early 20th century. Single-sex organisations were established and campaigns on specific women's issues were launched. The Ladies' National Association, the LNA, was established in London in 1869 and had a significant base in Bristol and was key in campaigning to repeal the Contagious Diseases Acts, which gave the power of the police to arrest women suspected of being prostitutes and to force them to undergo medical examination. The LNA campaigned against these acts with a distinctly feminist argument, saying that the punishing of prostitutes was wrong, as was giving men power over women's bodies. The big issues were about women workers' rights and about the right of middle-class women to somehow earn a living if they didn't get married because you know, they could only be a governess or there weren't opportunities in women's education. So these were the kind of things that mobilized a lot of women uh, to get involved in politics. And yeah, then the exactly. suffrage movement sort of comes out of that. And then the suffragettes who are more militant direct action law are established in 1903. Many women also played key roles in the burgeoning labour and trade unionist organisations that emerged with the popularity of socialist theories in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. A fascinating biographical sketch by Mike Richardson and Sheila Rowbottom in Professor Dresser's book illuminates the remarkable, if short, life of Miriam Danielle, née Wheeler, 1861-94, a socialist and so-called new woman who radically rejected conventional ideals about women's roles. A member of the Bristol Women's Liberal Association, Danielle was inspired by Walt Whitman and the American transcendentalist poets, and during flood relief work in the late 1880s, she became increasingly aware of the plight of the Bristol working classes. She became a member of the Bristol Socialist Society and became involved in a wave of Bristol strikes from 1889 to 90. She was a charismatic speaker who addressed striking iron workers and then Barton Hill Cotton Factory, where 1,700 workers, mainly women, went on strike in October 1889. Danielle lived a radical social as well as political life, and after she fell in love with a young Scottish student, Robert Nicholl, she brought him back to live with her husband. Her and Nicholl published a pamphlet, The New Trade Unionism, arguing for equality between the sexes, she was eventually divorced from her first husband, and the two, that is her and Nicole, emigrated to America. 
but not before a scandalised newsprint media had heard her pronounce during the divorce suit that free love was better than legalised marriage. The changing climate of the age meant that more women's voices were heard in public arenas, but we should not underestimate the extraordinary courage of women like Miriam Danielle, nor indeed of Jesse Stephen, who Professor Dresser explains links socialism with the suffragist movement, with the women's liberation movement in the later 20th century. This amazing woman uh, to bring us into the 20th century called Jessie Stevens, who mm -hmm. I had the privilege of meeting when I first came to Bristol in the 70s. She began her life as a domestic worker in a socialist household. Well, she was from a socialist family. Uh, at 16, was a domestic servant. Mm -hmm. Union tried to unionize the domestic servants, and uh, you know, in, in Scotland, and then got recruited to the suffragettes and was putting acid in post boxes and things. She was like yeah. a real militant. Yeah. And then she sort of um, calmed down a bit. She's still fiery and, and, and committed to social justice. Got involved in the co-op movement. A lot of people don't think that the co-op movement is particularly radical, but mm -hmm. it was, you know, it was about good food, non-adulterated food, about, um, uh, you know, women's issues, quality of life issues. And... Um, she got involved with them. She was a city councillor in various cities. Ended up in the 50s as a councillor in, in Bristol, a city councillor and a member of the co-op and trade unionists. And then um, attended the first women's lib meeting in 1970. So you have this amazing continuity yes. uh, between the first you know, feminist movement of the suffragettes mm. with the, um, with the um, uh, women's lib movement of the 70s. In the early 20th century, we can begin to see gender cutting across traditional class and political lines. Professor Dresser again. There was actually quite a bit of cooperation, um, before, especially before the 1920s, between some Tory women and um, uh, socialist and liberal women uh, because of, uh, on women's issues. It didn't mean they agreed on everything, mm. but there was they would work together on, you know, uh, uh, women's welfare and uh, representation of women in government and things like that. Um, so Emily Smith was a Tory woman who was a, uh, a, a campaigner for women's uh, rights. She might not have seen herself as a, a feminist in the mm -hmm. same way, but she certainly was working along that. Um, uh, th that kind of ambivalence is interesting. A lot of liberal women were involved in campaigning for women's rights. Um, and I came with the other interesting thing you come across uh, is the first woman MP in Bristol, mm -hmm. who nobody knows about. I mean, do you know who the first woman MP is? Uh, I don't think I do. <laughs> well, no one's heard of her, don't worry. Uh, her name is Lady Apsley, and she was the widow of the MP for Bristol Central, who got killed during the war, mm -hmm. World War II. And she only reigned uh, as an MP between 43 and 45. But what a woman. Uh, in that, she was... Um, you know, from of the gentry, and you know, a great huntress. You know, wrote. She's also an air, uh, airline, not airline, airplane pilot, qualified pilot, and a, um, a, a very serious motorist as well. She broke her back in the hunt, and she was a wheelchair user when she got to Parliament. So she was probably one of the first disabled people in Parliament, certainly the first woman. And she was a Tory imperialist. She, in her twenties, with her husband, had masqueraded as poor English immigrants to the outback in Australia, and, and recorded her memoirs. So she was chopping wood and cooking for the first time, and things like that. But also very racist, you know, yeah. towards Aborigines and anti-Semitic and all that. 
admired Hitler rather. Yeah. Uh, but when the Blitz came, uh, and she was, you know, she was a great conservative campaigner with her husband. When the Blitz came, um, she really masterminded the British Legion and a lot of the women's voluntary service, which you might think, oh, that's, you know, uh, ladies who lunch or, you know, voluntary stuff. But that kind of stuff was crucial to the civilian effort. It mm. was hugely administratively demanding. And then she, she took over his uh, seat for Parliament. And she campaigned. She wouldn't see herself as a feminist, uh, but she campaigned for... Um, of equal treatment for women in the um, air force, in the armed services, mm -hmm. and more training for women, and also for the disabled, environmental issues. It seems to me there's a continuity with all, a lot of these women uh, that they were campaigning for quality of life issues mm -hmm. that men tended to see as on the margins of politics, but we're beginning to realize are crucial to both economics and politics, yeah, uh, environment, that. family welfare. Uh, you know, social care is a big issue now that we realize is pretty crucial mm. to the functioning of our society. And it's those issues that uh, women um, in public life have always uh, been, uh, uh, you know, associated with. Thanks so much to Professor Madge Dresser for covering so much ground. And I would urge any of you interested in Bristol women's history to pick up her excellent book, which is available from Redcliffe Press, and it's called Bristol, Women and the City, 1373-2000. to 2000. I also want to draw listeners' attention to an excellent community theatre company called ACTA, that's A-C-T-A, based in Bedminster. They often focus their productions around interesting, little-known aspects of Bristol history, and next week they begin their show Gas Girls, which tells the story of the women who produced mustard gas in Avonmouth factories during the First World War. I'll certainly be going along, and I urge you to check it out at www.acta-bristol.com. Thanks again for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe or write me a positive review on iTunes. And if you have any ideas for future programmes, then you can email the podcast at bristolhistorypodcast at gmail.com.